Good to see everyone this morning. Appreciate you all being here. I want to um, bring a lesson this morning, my voice willing, um, about some views into the promised land. I um, always look for connections and and ways things are connected in the Bible. I think it's very interesting, and I think it's not by accident that things are woven together such as they are. God puts that there for a purpose. He, he, he demonstrates that uh, see things from different points of view and, and to use that to inform us uh, about his nature and about his glory and, and how we are to respond to that. And so he gives us example over long periods of time and to and, and connects those things. And, and when we see those connections, we can, we can really be inspired and, and really encouraged. And I hope that this lesson will, will, will be along those lines. Nothing in this lesson that I'm sure you haven't read or studied before, but hopefully the connection of, of these things will, will, will bring some encouragement to you. Some, so let's look at some views uh, into the promised land. And I want to start with uh, the Israelites' view. And I'm going to have a little bit of a Bible drill today, so if you have your Bible, please follow along and um, turn to these passages as we get there. Let's start in Exodus chapter 3, as we consider uh, the views into the promised land. Let's start by talking about um, that promised land. Now, as we talked about in our class this morning, that promise goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when, when God promised Abraham that um, a, a land and a nation and through him all nations will be blessed, and this land is a part of that promise to Abraham. And in Exodus 3 here, we get a little bit more um, view of it as far as what God has in mind. We remember that God's people are in bondage in Egypt, and God has chosen Moses to lead them out of that bondage. And in Exodus chapter um, 3, beginning of verse 7, says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the, land of, uh, from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So we get uh, a land promised here, um, that land coming into view a little bit more and more. And God has seen the oppression of his people, and he's going to use Moses to, to remove them from that oppression and take them into the land of Canaan, this land that he has promised to them through Abraham. So we know the story as it goes, that they have their time as they're making their way towards the land. If you turn over to Numbers chapter 13, they're right there on the edge getting ready to go into the land. And um, Moses sends out uh, these 12 spies that will go out and look and, and see what the land is like. So in Numbers chapter 13, beginning verse 17, it says, When Moses sent them up to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev. Then go up into the hill country and see what the land is like, whether it's people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? 
How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps with fortifications? Uh, are they like open camps or with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make every effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So Moses commissions these to go in and, and check it out, to see what the land is like that, that they've been promised, and to see what it is that they're about to inherit, as God has made that promise to them. Verse 23, or verse 21, let's go back, it says, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob and Labo Hamath. And they had gone up into the Negev, and they came to Hebron, where Ahiman and Shishiah and Talmai and the descendants of Anak were. Uh, verse 23, And they came to the valley of Eshcol, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men, some of the pomegranates and the figs, in that place where they called the valley of Eshcol because of the cluster of the sons of the Israel cut down from there. So they did exactly what Moses asked them. They're bringing back some fruits of the land. So they've seen, they've looked over into the land, and they've seen what it is. And it says there in verse 25 that when they came back from spying out the land after 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, the sons of Israel in the wilderness. And they brought back word to the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Verse 27, thus they told them, said, We went into the land where you, where you sent us, and certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Great. So there they are. They, they've, they've, it does flow with milk and honey, as God has promised to us. And, and here's some of the fruit that we've brought back. So everything's all well and good. But unfortunately, the land that God has promised to them through the report of these spies, they're going to reject that land. Verse 28, it says, Nevertheless, the people who live there uh, are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is there, living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and living in the hill country, and the Canaanites. And they're living at the sea in the side of Jordan. So they said, yeah, it's great, but nevertheless, there's people there, and the cities are fortified. We, we're not going to be able to go in. Caleb quieted the people down, verse 30, and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. We can know kind of how the, how the story plays out here. Yeah, Caleb and Joshua, they said, uh, Yeah, by all means we should go and take it. This is what God has promised to us. But these ten other spies are saying, No, we can't take it. And so, sadly, the children of Israel, right there on the edge of the promised land, they rejected God's promise. And we know how the story unfolds, that God is very angry with them. And he says, because you have done this, I am sentencing you to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before you can enter into that land. So there was a land promised, and they sent out these spies to go see it, and it was a beautiful land just like it was, but they rejected it. And so we might say that they were, they were able to enter into the land, but they were not willing and it is a very sad state of affairs that, that comes to this point where God has made all these promises. He's brought them all this way and performed things in front of their eyes and all these things that he, have, that he has done. They get right there to the edge and they reject the promises that God has given to them. We talked about the Israelites' view. Let's talk about Moses' personal view of the land. Let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 32. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
This is near the end of Moses' life, and he is uh, recounting the things that have happened here in the book of Deuteronomy. And towards the end here, he's, they're getting ready to go into the land. And the promised land is, is now nearly realized. They've, they've gone through the 40 years, and now they're getting ready to go in. And this is Moses' personal um, accounting here and what's happening with him. Deuteronomy 32, beginning of verse 48, says, The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain, uh, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. So here they are again, right on the precipice, right ready to take, to go into the land. And here's a conversation that God is having with Moses. But look, verse 50 says, <coughs> Then die on the mountain where you uh, ascend and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go into there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. Now, we know the backstory that Moses, uh, when they were in need of water, uh, on one occasion God said to take your, your staff and strike the rock and water will pour for it, and that's what he did. The second time, similar situation, God said, Moses, take this, the staff in your hand and speak to the rock, and the water will come pour. Well, Moses did that except he struck the rock again. And he said to the children of Israel, look what we have provided for you. And because he did that, not only did he disobey God's command by striking the rock instead of speaking to it, but took credit for the waters that poured forth, this is his sentence for that. God says, you're going to see that land, but you're not going to enter into it. So all this that Moses has done, and, and for the 40 years that he has led the children of Israel because of the one mistake that he made, he's not going to enter into that land. It tells us something very important about God, doesn't it? He sees, Moses does, he sees the land that has been promised to his brethren, but he's not going to enter into it. Turn over probably a page in your, in your Bible there to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. This is the last time that, that God will speak to Moses. He went up there from the plains of Moab to, to Mount Nebo, the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, Nephtali and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh and the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, and the Negev and the plain of the valley of Jericho, and the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? And it sounds sad for this great man Moses, for all that he did and all the, the, that he endured leading this, um, what God described as a stiff-necked people. Yet for that one mistake that he made, he's not going to enter into the land. Verse 5, so Moses the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, and no one knows his burial place to this day. 
And verse 7 is, is always intrigued me, and I'll call it to your attention. It says, And although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. Now, he was 120 years old. But the way I read this and understand it, it says his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. Physically, sounds like he could have lived a little while longer. But God was ready for him to die. This is the time that God had chosen for him to die. Because of God being true to his promise, because of what Moses had done, it was time for him to die. And that's what he did. He died there on that mountain, and God himself buried him. No one knows uh, the, the burial place for Moses, this, this great man. But it shows us a lot about God, doesn't it? It tells us that he expects us to obey what he says. And there's consequences when we don't. Even for great men like Moses. Moses had his own personal view of the promised land, and a land that, that he would not get to enter into. So we might say that he was willing to enter into that land, but he was not able, which is opposite from the children of Israel. The Israelites didn't want to enter into the land, even though they had the ability to do so. Another view I want us to look at. Let's go into the New Testament now. Let's, let's go into the book of Revelation. John has a view of the promised land, in a way. Not the land of Canaan, but certainly the, a, promised, a promised land that God has promised to us. And John has a very special uh, view into that land. To set the stage here, we understand that what John is shown here in the book of Revelation are these scenes and these images and uh, our Lord speaking directly to him and angels speaking to him. But in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him uh, to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the, the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John lets us know that, that he has seen these things, and he's communicating the things that he has both seen and heard uh, to his readers and on down, immediate readers to the churches of Asia and on down to us. If you look over in chapter 4, in verse 1, this again tells us a little bit more in, uh, about the, the nature of what John is seeing. In Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may take, must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Can you imagine that view that John had? says, the voice says, come up here, and he, there, he describes it as a door standing open to which he could look into heaven. And that's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? And if we think about <clears throat> what John describes and the amazing uh, scenes that he sees before him, 
I think that it doesn't even do justice to what all is there because he is speaking in human terms of what he's seeing in the spiritual realm. But even amidst all that, <clears throat> John is able to, to describe what he has seen, again, in, in human terms. And it's interesting to see what he has, uh, is seeing in all this. But towards the end of this, he gets a, a view of a promised land. Look over in chapter 21 of Revelation. We skipped over a lot of things that he saw, but for the, the purposes of this lesson, we don't have time to go into all that, but he saw some amazing things. But in chapter 21, similar to God taking Moses up on the top of a mountain, John gets to go up to the top of a mountain and see a vision of a promised land. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 10, <coughs> says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having, uh, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of clear, uh, crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and all the gates were 12 angels and the names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So here's John, similar to Moses. God takes him up to the, or the angel, um, takes him up to the high mountain and shows him this vision. And, and John sees Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God. The beautiful scene that he sees there, similar to what Moses saw when he looked over and saw the land of Canaan and all that he, his brethren were about to inherit. John has a similar vision here of what his brethren are going to inherit. And if you look in um, <clears throat> chapter 22, there is a description here of that ultimate promised land. In chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, it says, And he showed me a river, <clears throat> the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were the healing of the nation. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have the need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Isn't that a beautiful glimpse that we get into heaven? How John describes it there, about the, the water coming from the throne of God and the, the street with the, the tree of life, and, and there's no need for the sun there because God illumines everything, and he says that there we shall reign forever and ever. That's the ultimate promised land. For the children of Israel, it was Canaan. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It <clears throat> could have provided for all their physical needs. And in a spiritual way, it could have provided for them as well. If they would have gone along with, with God and, and, and been obedient to him, there was spiritual nourishment there too. But for us, that ultimate promised land awaits us. So what about our view to that promised land? What is it that, that we see? Well, I would tell you that 
We get to see what John saw. There's a reason that John wrote these things down. Yes, his, his, his immediate audience were those seven churches in Asia, but we benefit by the Holy Spirit leading him to write these things and, and, and that being preserved for us so that we still get to see what John saw, at least the way he describes it. So what is our ultimate view to the, to the promised land? Well, like I said, it's that view that we share with John. We also share it with Paul, the way he describes it in, in passing terms. Look over in uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 as... Um, Paul is nearing the end of his life. He, he begins to focus on the life that is to come. In 2 Timothy 4, and verse 6, beginning, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. He realizes that he is at the end of his life, and he's looking over into that, that promised land. And he describes it this way. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So he's looking forward to that time when he gets to stand before the righteous judge, the righteous God, and have that crown placed on his head. And here's where we come in. He says there, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So that brings us into the equation. The view that we get to have, we get to share with Paul as he's thinking about that crown of righteousness that's laid up for him. We get to share that view of John as he is, is shown these amazing uh, scenes in heaven. And he sees Jerusalem coming down and how it's adorned and all the beautiful language that's there and how uh, the life is, is exemplified there and how God illumines all things and there's no... There's no evil there. There's no night there. We shall reign there forever and ever. Revelation 14, verse 13, says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow with them. It says there that those who die in the Lord from now on are blessed. And why do you think that is? It's because of what we've just talked about. Because there's a land out there, a land of rest, a promised land that awaits us. We've been shown glimpses into it. Paul has told us that um, there's a crown of righteousness awaiting us there. So we get that view over into heaven. And that is a blessed, promised land that we have waiting for us when this life is over. So we might say this, that we are both willing and able to enter into that land. The Israelites, they weren't willing, even though they were able. Moses, he was willing, but wasn't able. For us, we should be willing and able to enter into that land. What a glorious land it is. What a beautiful place heaven must be. We've been given glimpses of it. We've been shown uh, through the writings of men and inspired by God what heaven will be like. But we can rest assured that God has set that up for us. He's promised it to us. 
Just like with the Israelites and Moses, it's promised to us, and, and we are able to enter into that land if we remain faithful and obedient to him. Heaven's beautiful, marvelous place. Let's make sure we don't fall short. We have an invitation song, number 322. 322, bring Christ to your broken life. We have a wonderful uh, set of blessings from our salvation to forgiveness of sin to the life we have in this, in, in this world as Christians with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have that promised land of rest waiting for us when this life is over. We've been given a glimpse into it. Let's make sure we enter over into that land.